Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Thomas Kutzman, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of Preview, that's spelled P-R-E-V-U, and Preview is a customer-focused digital home buying platform delivering industry-leading efficiency and savings. In this episode, we talk all about how the real estate industry is really going digital, how he's grown Preview since its launch, and how he's looking at growth for the future and beyond with Preview. So many insights in this episode, especially in the real estate industry. Cannot wait for you to listen. And the show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and a review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Thomas Kutzman, the co-founder and co-CEO of Preview. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hi, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, great to have you on. And obviously, we're going to talk about Preview and all things with that. And and with this, for people who don't have any context, like what is Preview and how did this get started, Thomas? Sure. Preview is a digital home buying platform focused on saving home buyers money. Uh, my co-founder, Chase Marsh, and I were extremely frustrated with the high fees and, you know, antiquated process in the residential real estate arena, particularly with purchases and sales. Uh, and we saw a huge opportunity here to you know, help bring a digital experience to the consumer uh, in, re- in real estate. I think for probably far too long, even with all you've seen over the last decade or two uh, with technology coming to real estate, uh, the unfortunate thing is that the industry is focused on the agent uh, and not the consumer. And you know, we think that you know the consumer is going to really benefit over the coming years, not only from preview but all the other great, uh, you know, revolutionary technologies that are coming to the consumer experience uh, within real estate. And with that too, Thomas, I'm curious. You is are you a first time founder? Correct. Yeah, first time founder. Uh, you know, my co-founder and I both came from a financial markets background, um, but had invested in real estate over the years. So. You know, we, we naturally gravitated towards, uh, you know, real estate and our investing behavior. Um, and that's, you know, from our own activities and our own investments, we saw the need for this. From that, then understanding the need and seeing there's definitely like, this is a pain point for people. There's an opportunity within this for you guys. Then, I mean, what were you thinking that the initial version of preview was going to be? And what did that end up being? Like, what was the kind of initial version of preview? Sure. So the the MVP before we pivoted in 2017 uh, was actually intended to be a for sale by owner platform. Uh, you know, I think the industry is conditioned to everybody to think that well, the seller pays the commission, um, which is you know partially true, right? Like it's a line item <laughs> for the seller. Uh, yeah. However, you know, the person showing up with all the money is actually the one you know paying for everything. Uh, but we quickly realized that you know the seller part of the transaction is far less automatable, far less scalable. Uh, and we actually, in our research on the seller business, discovered like maybe we're thinking about this the wrong way. Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, let's call them tech-enabled brokerages have tried to pursue, you know, fixing things for the seller and have failed. Uh, you know, we quickly realized that, wait, the opportunity might not be in saving seller's money, it's actually in saving buyer's money. Uh, and in turn, you end up, you know, saving the entire transaction, uh, you know, a, a boatload of money uh, as you go through it. So when you're building this, then the initial kind of phases, then did you fun, have to fundraise right away for it, or did you were you able to like build MVP and make some some progress and get traction, just kind of bootstrapping uh, in the beginning? Sure, yeah. So when when you look at you know founders as you see it on television or in Silicon Valley, you know everybody has this 
you know, vision of a you know, Silicon Valley, Stanford alum, you know, building something in their garage. Right. You know, we were very fortunate to you know, have, you know, lucrative careers in the past. So we were able to bootstrap uh, the early version of preview with our own money. Um, and, you know, that actually led to a, a much greater operational discipline. So when we you know, did come time to raise money, uh, you know, we were far more efficient uh, as founders, as with our capital usage. So um, I think it's, you know, I would encourage all founders to bootstrap as long as possible um, or raise as little as possible in the very early days until you perfect uh, what you're working on. And you mentioned the co-founder as well. So take me through how that came about in terms of you and your co-founder deciding like we're actually going to do this together. Like we are the right fit together as partners to do this because uh, that's something that can definitely derail uh, any company where you look at the actual team. I'm curious as to that relationship and, and how you decide like this, was, like, we are going to be the two people to do this. Sure. Yeah, well, we've, we met each other uh, on a you know equities trading desk at a major investment bank. Uh, probably circa 2009. So we've known each other well over a decade now. And, you know, we saw the world very differently, but had a lot of similar interests. Um, so we even found ourselves, even though we were working in financial markets, we'd talk about real estate all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I think what brought us together as a founding team uh, was that, you know, yin and yang uh, approach to things. You know, um, you know, we look at the world differently. Um, you know, Chase is, is much more focused on, you know, the pure real estate side of it, the legal, the operational disciplines, uh, where I gravitate towards a lot of the marketing and, you know, finance functions. So, um, you know, there's actually a natural division of labor uh, and a natural, natural uh, division of interests. Uh, so it, it really is a, you know, a perfect partnership uh, when you look at it. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And that's something that's super important in terms of having that different diversified kind of skill sets to have the right team to build it. So it seems like it, it worked out well. And you mentioned bootstrapping, obviously, uh, to get the get preview off the ground and everything. Well, take me through then, how are you acquiring your, your first customers to actually use the, the platform then? Sure. So uh, when you look at the current model of, of what we're doing now, in the very, very early days, obviously you were operating on a limited budget. You didn't go out and spend a ton on um, ads or going through different marketing channels. Uh, so in the very early days, since we, you know, we fancy ourselves as a very consumer focused company, uh, right. focusing on that consumer experience, um, part of that consumer experience, especially when you're looking at uh, residential real estate, the largest transaction of most people's lives education is is extremely important not only having a great agent with you through the process to educate you but you know how can we educate people before they're ever a customer and how can we use that education lens uh, to improve the consumer experience and lead to actual customer acquisition so in the very early days we were you know started with a very active blog we you know we took a playbook out of the buffer intercom hubspot approach of what are the questions that people are asking um, and then, you know, I've, I've probably talked about this several times on other podcasts, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I like to think of, we write a, a blog post every time we hear a topic two or three times in a room, whether it's from a customer, from an agent, um, you know, we try to, to answer the questions that we are hearing repeatedly. Uh, and you know, that's been, you know, that's only one pillar of our acquisition strategy, but it's, uh, was the early, early one that got us going. 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, Buffer and HubSpot. I mean, those t- companies like that have just perfected that in terms of their acquisition with with really SEO heavy, using that content and leveraging that content. And then once you do have funding as well, being able to leverage that from a paid perspective as well, not even just just the SEO side and redirecting content there, re- redirecting people back to that content. There's so many things you can do with it. Uh, from my own experience too, with like when I was running Just Go Fitness getting personal training clients and everything from content was easy. It's just how you built that trust with them. And you also, people found you through the content you're producing and they became clients that way. So there's a lot to be said for that side of things. And you mentioned obviously taking a customer kind of centric approach. How are you getting feedback along the way, figuring out what questions they were asking that side of things as well for preview? Yeah, so I think in the very early days as you you know do the onboarding calls to determine, you know, what a consumer needs, what a buyer needs, who should they be paired with as an agent. Uh, in the early days when you have a limited staff, uh, you know, you as founders are on those calls. You're, you're hearing those questions. You're hearing um, the, the positives, uh, the, you know, the benefits that people are seeing in your business. And they're all, you're also seeing the, the potential blind spots or questions. So I think some founders try to over-delegate early. And it goes back to our point of, you know, bootstrapping first, you want to have a firm handle on the business. You want to have sat in every seat that you're hiring for uh, to the extent you can, because if you don't understand the role in the seat, like how can you, you know, know who can help you take it to the next level? How can you, you know, possibly be empathetic or help manage for those situations if you haven't, you know, sat in that seat before? Yeah. So, especially in the, in the very early days. So, I think uh, you know, having been in in you know various you know roles internally, um, you know wearing different hats, um, you know helped us you know build a better experience for the consumer. And with that early part too, I mean, like take me through what was that onboarding process? What was that sign up process like when you were first getting started with this as well, with with customers coming on board? In their very very early days, uh, you know, we'd have signups and we'd get an email alert, and you know then have to you know use other services to you know, notify clients or to reach out to clients. And, you know, we, we almost took the Airbnb approach of, you know, do things manually until it hurts, <laughs> do it on a spreadsheet. And then, then once you realize you need to build something, then your tech team will go build it. Um, and now we're, we're very, very fortunate. We have, you know, a great product leader uh, at the team. Uh, we have internal engineering. It's, it's, we can build stuff much, much faster than ever before but we do still experiment before we go out and do a massive build or really, you know, change our infrastructure um, technologically for any specific need. Um, so, you know, in the very early days, it was very manual. Um, now everything, you know, we like to say, you know, we're building, you know, automations that can make any task for a consumer or an agent, you know, click of a button. And you mentioned like pivoting at one point as well. What got you to that point of kind of shifting things a little bit within preview, what preview was? We have always been very data driven, you know, especially coming from financial markets background and you, you see what's working and what's not working. We were constantly experimenting even in the original MVP and the data was telling us that focusing on the seller was the wrong strategy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Chase and I have, you know, our daily brainstorms, we're, we're constantly in communication as, you know, we, we ob- observe different you know, data points. Um, and it was actually, you know, Chase that convinced me to to pivot right like obviously most founders even that you you try to fight the data in the beginning but you have to react quickly and you know chase laid out a very compelling case to shift to the buyer business um and once we made the decision it was you know 
full tilt, like, let's, let's do this. And I think that's the key thing. You know, you have to, once you make the decision, you have to commit to it. You can't do it, you know, half-assed. You have to really go after it. Take me through like that conversation with, with Chase and then going through that side thing. I mean, was that, how long was that type of, that process even of, of pivoting and shifting or how did that, how did that go? Cause I know, you know having talking to a number of other founders that can be a difficult decision to really bet on it and really change things. Like how did that go? I'm just like curious about that. I mean, the, the conversation and discussion of it all was, was probably like a, a 15, 20 minute conversation. Um, you know, there was a strong back and forth and, you know, it was a compelling case and it was like, I'm convinced let's do it. And we probably rolled out the whole pivot within one to three months. Obviously there was, you know, big technological changes that had to happen and some additional licensing changes. Um, but we, we pivoted and turned it around pretty much in one to three months. It was, it was a very quick, quick turnaround. And, you know, I think that's just coming again, going back to our financial markets background, um, we were always conditioned to be able to respond to data and make quick decisions. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you agonize a decision or you take too much time, you could also, you could run out of money as a company. Like we were fortunate to be able to you know, back the company in the early days. But if you're, even if you're a venture backed startup, if you take too long to pivot, you can run out of, run out of runway. Yeah. And that's a big reason why startups fail. It's just running out of cash and team issues. And, uh, you seem to figure that out. And with, with that side of things though, um, in terms of, as you're growing from the early days and you have this idea and you, you're doing a lot of things yourself, growing the team itself, then how has that been over the, the number of years for you? And how have you kind of gone about growing the team? It's, it's actually been you know, very enjoyable. And you know, we, yeah, I think we're, we're pretty good salespeople, uh, again, coming <laughs> When you, if you get a stock idea, you can pitch someone on your own company, uh, especially yeah. if you're so passionate and believe in it. Um, but, you know, I think you just, you can't do too many things at once. You have limited resources uh, and you have to prioritize what those important hires are and what key functions. Um, and you have to roll them out, you know, very strategically. So like our first big hire um, as we started to expand was Russell Sinclair, who's our VP of product. Um, you know, strong domain expertise uh, in the real estate you know, community, a strong player in the New York tech community. Uh, and, you know, we, we met him and just said, we, this is the guy. We don't, we're not technical co-founders, um, but we need, to, we need to add to the tech savvy of this team. And, uh, you know, that was the, the first great example of, of hiring someone that believed in what we were working on. Um, and it was someone that was an, an adult at the table for, for that job function. Um, and we've tried to take that, that, that early lesson and that early example of hiring Russell to every other key function we hire, whether it's, you know, at the HQ or now as we're growing and going to other geographies, as we hire different folks in different areas, we would try to, you know, get the best talent, uh, for the job at hand. How did you meet him in the first place? It was, it was an introduction. It was actually a, a, a good friend of Chase's, you know, had, had known Russell and said like, you, you know, you should, you should meet Russ, this guy, Russell, he's, he's, you know, he knows real estate. I think he, you know, he'd be interested in what you're working on. You should have a conversation. And, you know, it started by, you know, the three of us grabbing a beer one day and, you know, you think like, oh, well, it's just like an introductory meeting. You have a beer. Um, and next thing you know, this guy seems really sharp. He, he believed in the idea and probably within a week it was all, you know, we, we took action and, and made the hire. That's awesome. It go, again, it goes back to like, if, if there's someone you think that's 
high quality for your team, you have to make the offer very quickly. What were, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, this was a, this was your first major hire was the technical side of it and the product side of it as non-technical co-founders. I mean, what were the challenges with that even before bringing, bringing Russell on? Like what were the challenges of being a non-technical co-founders? So I, I think the key thing was, you know, I, I had traded, you know, internet and software stocks over the years. So like some of the lingo wasn't that foreign to me. Um, but the actual you know, product management, project management of, of building and creating a product roadmap was definitely a learning experience. And, and our early MVPs were all built by outsourced you know, uh, engineers. So I think it was more so not the pain for us. I think it was the pain for them dealing with us. Um, <laughs> yeah, our early mock-ups were on you know, printer paper, you know, hand-drawn, take a photo of it and you know, send it via email to the developers. Um, so, you know, by bringing in someone like Russell, who thinks about the roadmap and implications and infrastructure, it's not just the, I want to build a cool feature. It's the, what's the goal of the feature? When do we need this feature? Who are we building it for? Um, you know, involving the potential user into that, you know, the, the feedback and the building of it. Uh, that's where we really started to, to strengthen on the technology side. Um, and when you look at where we are in real estate with the digital experience, right? Uh, and this has been become even more pronounced with, uh, with the post-COVID era. Uh, yeah. The adoption of digital home buying is here to stay. Uh, we were already seeing the very strong signs of it before COVID. And now it's, just, it's completely off the charts as far as how strong of an interest people are having in our platform in a quarantine, even a post-quarantine era. Um, the strength of the digital buying experience is really important. So by having our focus on building out that platform for both the consumer and the agent leads to a much different collaboration between the consumer and agent that consumers actually want. They don't want to deal with traditional agents. They don't like, they don't like the current experience. They find most agents pushy. Whereas with us, we're here to help the platform guides you through the process and you can collaborate with your agent seamlessly online. And it's, it's the future of where things are going. And I think far too often in real estate, even if you look at some of the successful traditional brokerages, anything they've done with technology is incrementalism, where I feel like we're taking really a leap forward in the actual shift that's occurring in consumer behavior. Uh, and focusing on the consumer versus the agent is, has really helped us to, to be at the forefront of that. And I definitely want to dig more into that and kind of the current state, especially during COVID with everything and those shifts. But there's a couple of things I want to go back to. One being you mentioned around outsourcing the early product development. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially when they're getting started or have these ideas for technical things when they're not technical founders, how did you go about outsourcing the initial like MVPs and what, what was most helpful for you? Yeah. So we went through an agency. If you try to just find a one-off developer here or there that's consulting and you don't have the background in it. Like I, th I think it's a recipe for disaster. I think you want to deal with an agency that can hear your needs, pair you with the right people uh, and guide you. And I, I think, you know, you know, anybody that's doing it, a, a strong agency will almost be your outsourced product management until you can, until, until you can hire for it. So I think, uh, I think that's super important because I think too many founders think like, Oh, I just need to grow, go out and grow headcount. They like hire a bunch of developers, um, and you might not need all of those developers right out of the gate. And when you're outsourcing early, when you are working on a bootstrap limited budget, 
you can scale your team up and down very seamlessly from a cost perspective. But once you start hiring people, you need to have enough for them to work on, especially in the early days of experimentation when you're building a lot, but you're not always building and you're going through like more sprints than actual um, consistent building. It's much better to have an outsourced team until you have the financial resources um, and the roadmap uh, to keep a full team of engineers ready. How did that, how did you find that firm then that would find these engineers? Yeah. So even though we worked in financial markets, we had other friends at startups. Um, so it was, it was a friend in another startup that said, Hey, like we've used this agency before you should use this agency. And, uh, yeah, they were fantastic. And there was a, you know, word of mouth referral from, a you know, a other successful startup founder friend. That's awesome. I mean, it's such a, it's a, it's such an important thing to be able to find, I mean, especially early on when you're trying to figure out there's so many options and so many ways to go about it. And you've probably heard all the horror stories of people trying to find developers and really wasting thousands and thousands of dollars on them. So to be able to find a good team is so valuable. As you've gone through growing preview, you mentioned that you bootstrap for the beginning and for a while, eventually you end up raising a seed round of a couple million dollars. How did that come about understand that you wanted to raise or had to raise uh, a round of financing? Yeah, we, I mean, I think when you want to build a massive company, uh, you know, at some point you're going to have to go out and raise money. Uh, I think when you make the decision to go out, you need a story to tell. You need to be very clear that the data supports that story. And you also have to have figured a few things out. Like you need to know that it's starting to work. You need to see, see and hear that, you know, as they say, the, like the, the gears are clicking into place. Um, and you have, you have to then go out and market that. Uh, and, you know, real estate there, you know, again, we were talking about the seller versus buyer equation. Um, yeah. There have been a lot of, you know, these, again, quote unquote, tech enabled brokerages that tried to, you know, raise money focused on sellers uh, and they failed miserably. And, you know, we stood out, I think, very clearly from the fray in that like 20 or 30 other people are focused on sellers. These guys are focused on buyers. Um, you know, and that was part of our, you know, secret sauce, if you will, of like we were very differentiated uh, and we are laser focused on buyers, uh, not sellers. With that too, then in that fundraising process, having not necessarily have raised venture backing before, I mean, how long did that process take? Did you get advice on how to go through that? Because it can be such a challenge to raise funding for a company. Yeah, we knew, we had gotten advice. Obviously, we came from a financial markets background, so we we knew how to tell the story. Um, you know, it's usually it can be a very quick process, but you know, you know, definitely took a, a little bit longer than expected. Um, again, avoiding that being bucketed um, with the the quick uh, dismissal of a of a pitch. Right? It's yeah, you know. I, VCs do get a bad rap sometimes. Like they're looking at thousands of companies per year. Uh, they have to have a methodical framework. So it is very easy to get caught up in the net or get caught up on like thrown into this, you know, bucketed pile. Um, so you really have to have your, your pitch ready. And I think you also have to not be afraid to iterate on your pitch. Um, you know, you could, same way you're AB testing anything for a consumer, you should be AB testing um, when you're talking to, uh, VCs as well. 
take me through how many, I mean, roughly, you don't have an exact number necessarily, but I mean, how many pitches do you end up doing or how many investors do you think you talk? Dozens, a hundred plus, 200 plus? I'm just curious about that too. Yeah. I mean, it was probably, probably dozens for sure. Um, you know, it was not the, the classic, oh, we spoke to a hundred people and the, the hundred and first said yes. Um, you know, we probably spoke to dozens um, and, you know, the folks that did our, that led our seed round um, had previously invested in in Compass uh, in the very early stages. Uh, so we were very targeted, given that we were focused on real estate. Uh, we we definitely reached out to the more real estate focused, or, or some people call it prop tech focused VCs, um, as well as consumer VCs. So um, the list was much shorter than like you would think when you, if you were building a SaaS company, your, your, your set of VCs you're potentially reaching out to is probably much, much broader. Uh, so we, yeah. we, especially at an early stage, we wanted to reach out to the folks that really understood real estate uh, and would appreciate our, our differentiation. And, uh, you know, we were able to find that. And with that too, understanding that you're, you're going to use this money for something and you have to decide on like what that's going to be and everything as well. Like, what did you see as the use of funds being once you were going to raise this money and, and how did you back into that, that number you ended up raising uh, to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I think any any good founder, they you have to have a strong model and understanding of like what you're spending money on, what it's going to return, and then and then hitting you know goal metrics. I think when you know, we were in one market um, with New York City when we raised money, uh, now we're in Boston, Philadelphia, you know, and as as well as still in New York. And when you look at that, you have to have money to go to the new markets. So not only the personnel for the new markets, but the marketing for the new markets. Uh, and plus, you're also now building more features for the platform for that consumer experience. Uh, and you really want to be prepared to then go out and hire uh, and expand on your engineering team so you can build stuff faster, um, especially when now you're integrating multiple markets uh, into your platform. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we looked at it very, very straightforward. It was a third, a third, a third, right? Uh, a third for personnel and new markets, a third for marketing and a third for engineering. And, you know, that's, you know, played out almost to a T, you know, it's very consistent with our model. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it was a, it was a strong plan and it's thus far it's playing out, you know, exactly to plan. And to that point of expanding new markets, I mean, how did that change the complexity of the business or what you were thinking about as you're deciding, you know, which markets we're going to expand into and the execution of that strategy as well, going from one market to multiple? Yeah, when when you look at it, like we're, we're focused on saving home buyers money. And so, you know, the first step in you know, evaluating that is where can we save people the most money, at least the first step of it, right? Um, yeah. So it's looking at, you know, top tier markets that are very similar to New York as far as, you know, price point, composition, um, et cetera. And preparing for that, um, it was no easy task. Um, and we rolled out the new markets uh, amid COVID. Um, so we actually launched Boston in June and it's been hot out of the gates. And it's a testament of the team working remotely you know, building through all of this, but we we hired and onboarded our entire Boston team completely remote. And wow. I think that's going to be a great playbook for us now as we expand, uh, you know, to new markets in the future, as we prepare to, to launch a new markets going to 2021. 
um, knowing we can do that um, is is super super encouraging. Um, but architecturally, we were already prepared for for a multi market going out. Everything we've always ever built has been pre been prepared in the anticipation of going to other markets. Um, so it's been a, a very strong infrastructure and very strong roadmap from that regard. So um, you know we're you know very happy with how everything's been going. Um, and when you see how busy real estate's been coming out of this and the shift towards digital experiences now, um, you know, July for us was, uh, you know, a record month beyond, you know, anything we've ever done before. Uh, and so we're, we're extremely excited about, you know, the, the increased adoption of, uh, of digital buying post, uh, COVID. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, with the COVID situation, when take me through how it's been since I mean, you mentioned, it's been good and you guys have been growing, but as, as it hit and then through the last number of months, cause we're recording this uh, near the end of August in 2020, uh, how have you gone through that? I mean, when it first kind of hit where everyone's closed down everything, I'm just curious on how, uh, how preview has gone through this whole COVID and quarantine situation. Sure. Yeah. I think there, there's a couple different ways to look at it. The The first is like our, our home market, our, our first market of New York. Um, if you've read anything in the media over the past you know few weeks or few months, you know, the demise of New York has been, you know, overly exaggerated. Uh, everybody <laughs> thinks that the world's going to fall off a cliff. Uh, I think Jerry Seinfeld even came out with a, a New York op-ed defending New York, uh, New York Times op-ed today to defend it. Um, Everybody thinks that, you know, that they're going to get a deal. Um, you know, yes, there was a contraction in volumes during Q2 uh, in the city overall. Um, same thing in July. You know, volumes were down year over year in a, in a city like New York. That said, the amount of buyers signing up on our platform to buy is off the charts. People love this city. They want to live in this city. Um, instead of buying a one bed, they're buying a two bed. Instead of buying a two bed, they're expanding to three and four bedrooms. So the talk about the the end of cities and people fleeing from the <laughs> suburbs, it's yeah, it's grossly exaggerated. Um, and when you look at the contraction of volumes in New York, we saw a multiple year over year pickup in our business in New York alone um, compared to New York being down 50%. And I think that's a testament to digital buying experiences. I think that's a testament to um, the media misreporting stuff. And even when you look up to other markets now, like Philadelphia and Boston, you had a limited amount of inventory coming into the crisis. Now you have an even greater constriction on inventory. So you're actually seeing prices go up. You're seeing bidding wars everywhere. So if you look at any of the data out there right now, I believe House Canary put out a report just this month showing that 40 out of the 50 U.S. states, prices are up post-COVID. Now, everybody tells you the world's ending, people are worried about the economy, but you've had unprecedented fiscal and monetary support post this. Uh, you have record low interest rates, and people have a new appreciation for their homes. Whether they're living in a city or a suburb, they're spending more time at home, and they're going to make a much more concerted effort and concerted investment in their home now. So I think you're going to come out of this um, very similar to what you saw post 9-11. There was a contraction of activity immediately after the event. Yep. And if you looked out one quarter, two quarters after that, real estate was off to the races. And I think you're going to see this exact same playbook 
and real estate's you know we we believe is going to be you know very strong coming out of this and you know everything we see from our data across all geographies is pointing to you know a stable market um, and a sharp rebound in buying activity. Understanding all of that and understanding that you, obviously you're growing, you, you raise money, you plans probably in the future, depending on how things go, I would imagine I'm raising again. But with that said, how do you look at growth in terms of which markets, in terms of um, what might be the best fit for you? I know you're very, very data centric and everything on that. I'm just curious on how you have evaluated that situation with where to expand to. Sure. Yes. The I think the key thing is going back to like our mission of, of having the greatest financial impact for home buyers. Um, you know, they will be the higher price point markets. So when you think of the, you know, the tier one, you know, top 20 markets in, in the country, um, you're looking for, you know, a high price, point, not just the high price point, but a high density of price points. So the ability, especially in, we, we call them vertical markets. So where you, your agent can be the most efficient in servicing the great, greatest amount of people uh, and, and go from there. And when you look at, you know, the demographics of, of, of our buyers, it's, it runs the gamut of age. It runs the gamut of, of, of all, all camps, all categories of, of potential buyers. Um, so that's very broad adoption. So it, we believe it will really work in, in every metropolitan market. Uh, and eventually we're even seeing, you know, in, inbound for, for sub, suburban requests. So we think, uh, you know, the suburbs will probably be an iteration after we, you know, take the, take the top 20 markets for, for us uh, in the metropolitan areas. Yeah. And then one thing too, just, just thinking about now going from when you launched this, you have the idea for it in 2015 and then to today, you know, five years in now, what does this experience look like for people? So if someone's coming to preview, they want to buy, you know, through preview, what does it look like for them? What's the experience today? Uh, yeah. So you sign up with preview. So say you're searching for a home in you know the New York city market. Uh, you sign up on preview, um, you see a, an index of listings that match your search criteria on every single listing page. You can see how much you could potentially save with our industry leading, you know, uh, smart buyer commission rebate. Uh, you can click a button and request a tour of that property. Uh, and the preview team schedules all of that and organizes that for you. Uh, you can message with our team at any point directly via the platform. So whether you're paired with an agent yet or just have a general question, there's always someone from the preview team available to answer your questions. Um, when you're ready to make an offer, you can be, start your offer online. You'll be paired with an agent uh, to help you with that offer. So, you know, you actually, in our view, you have a much better experience than a traditional experience because you're going to get a much faster response time. Yeah. Uh, you'll get daily property alerts. Every Friday, you'll get an open house email. And at the end of the day, you know, we've tried to take everything that a consumer would be doing and build a platform that gives them the tools uh, to have a zero pressure search. Um, consumers do not want to deal with, you know, a pushy, you know, traditional agent that's, you know, just following them around, encouraging them to go out. Um, oh, what do you want to see this weekend? What do you want to see this weekend? You know, it's a much more consumer consumer driven experience, the consumers making the decisions. Um, and it's, uh, it's a much, uh, it's a much more relaxed, uh, buying experience. And that's what, uh, that's what home buyers want today. Understanding the mission behind preview, what you're trying to do and what you've done, uh, you know, what you've done this far in these five years, how has your role as co-CEO changed and evolved in the last five years to today? 
I think in the early days, like you're, you're a jack of all trades or a Jill of all trades. And you're, you're really, you're sharing the responsibility on everything because there's only, you know, two of you, or even as you start to expand, there's three, four, five of you. Um, there's still a lot that's on your plate that, you know, that one of the two co-CEOs was doing. Now, as we've been able to, you know, hire great talent, delegate more, um, there's much more of, you know, a pure division of labor focusing on our strengths individually. Uh, and I think that's really, you know, one of the major, you know, evolutions, especially since raising the seed round where we can really, you know, focus on and our key strengths uh, much, uh, much more. And then for you, I, this is something I'm always kind of curious about. I'm just curious, like walk me through uh, what a day looks like for you at preview. I mean, from waking up to going to sleep because entrepreneurs have such crazy schedules typically and everyone's trying to figure out, you know, how to optimize. And I'm definitely interested in that. So I'm just curious as to what your kind of uh, day to day looks like. Yeah. I mean, I, I think as a real estate uh, co-founder, uh, real estate's a different animal than most other things. Uh, you, anything can come up at any time of the day. There's no real during the week or weekends off, like real estate's as busy on the weekends, if not busier on the weekends than during the week. So you get pulled into, you know, some additional tasks that come up. Um, you know, I take the, the Jack Dorsey approach of, of blocking my days. So, you know, I still wear a few hats. It's not just, not just the marketing hat or just the finance hat and the accounting hat. Um, I block my days where, my mornings are marketing or my afternoons are accounting. Um, I think if you can stay in the same lens or same mindset for, for blocks of time, whether it's be blocks of the day or, or days of the week, I think it, it definitely leads to a superior focus that leads to better results. And I, you know, any, any founder who's you know not accustomed to being pulled in a lot of directions, you, if you don't block your time, you're going to allow yourself to get pulled in a lot of directions and you won't have as much impact on any of the smaller tasks you're working on. And I, I think that's the, that, that's the key uh, when you're pulled in a lot of different directions versus just being in a corporate job with one task. Yeah. And especially if you look at uh, like Cal Newport with his book, Deep Work, talking about how, you know, multiple hours of time blocked off and people have different ways of getting into kind of deep work, but not shifting constantly between things. I've definitely found that for the podcast, trying to block off the mornings for interviews. And even before the interviews, it's a block of time for releasing episodes, promoting episodes, all of that. And to your point, like the afternoons are more of a bigger picture thinking and some other things. And then if you look at, you said Jack Dorsey, who separates his companies that way, same with Elon Musk, separating his days by different days, worked at different companies of his. And so it is that separation that you can just focus on certain tasks or certain types of things, I think is super helpful as well. And and on the topic of kind of like books and things that are helpful, has there been any particular books for you, personal or, or professional, that have been influential or impactful in your life? Yeah, I mean, I think my, my favorite book recently uh, was by Charles Schwab. Uh, was called uh, Invested. It was his memoir. And I think for me, it was it, it resonated a lot because not only was it a, an entrepreneur, a founder who took a new approach to an industry, uh, I thought it was very impactful for me because there were a lot of, you know, analogies between stock trading and the, the how, you know, equities trading in general has transpired over the years. Um, you know, from the early days of the Charles Schwab's of the world, fast forward all the way to the acquisitions of the E-Trades, Meritrades, um, and even the likes of Robinhood. When you see how that industry has evolved, I think there's a lot of parallels to real estate. 
I think we're in the very early innings of real estate becoming, you know, much more digital. And, you know, I thought that book and the lessons of, of how Charles Schwab navigated the highs and lows of, of that evolution, um, you know, was, it reminded me that, you know, there are days that are highs and there are day that, days that are lows. Um, but if you're working on something great, that's going to you know, revolutionize things for the consumer you just have to keep plowing through it. Yeah. And it is interesting to see from that perspective, like the, the real estate industry and the many different facets of that going, going digital, obviously look at yours with, with home buying, look at a company like Resi and, and renting as well as DoorKey. And then you look at investing with Lex where there's so many things that are going digital, whether you want to invest in real estate or whether you want to rent or whether you want to buy a lot of different innovations are taking place, which is, which is really cool to see and, and interesting to see how it evolves and continues to evolve and which companies ultimately kind of come out on top from that. Uh, and I've been following along, especially with those recent interviews of those people I mentioned. And f- for you, with understanding how you mentioned real estate is kind of 24-7, it's every day. It's not like it's during the week, weekends as well. How do you recharge away from work? I probably, you know, am, you know, perpetually... <laughs> Reminded by both like my wife and, and Chase that I should probably, you know, take a little bit more time, although, you know, ne- neither Chase nor myself really ha- take much time. Um, but I think that's a testament to like, if, if, you, if you're passionate about what you're working on, um, it doesn't feel like work. Like I'm excited every day I wake up um, to log into our dashboard, see what the business is doing. I, I don't take much time, um, but I've, I've historically never taken much time. I, I think it's from coming from a Wall Street background where there is such intensity. Um, it, it was just never encouraged at any place I've ever worked to take a lot of time off. So, um, you know, maybe maybe occasionally at night I'll, I'll toss on Netflix while I'm still still working. But um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I don't I don't really take much time. Uh, and uh, I, I can't give you a good reason other other than I, I like what I'm working on. So I'd, I'd probably do it 24-7 if I could. <laughs> to that point then, with uh, when you do unwind, then is it, you mentioned the Netflix. I mean, what about on the fitness side of things or anything with that? Or how do you balance that with the relationship as well? Because uh, I know there are founders that are in similar positions and definitely curious as to how people navigate that side of things, especially when we are typically type a and want to work on our companies all the time like what does that look like for you when you do kind of uh, step away yeah I, I i could admittedly say i could put more time into my fitness um yeah I, I used to be a lot more focused on it um you know it's definitely you know led to a you know a few pounds of of added weight you know becoming an entrepreneur um, sure. So I could definitely you know, make that a, the, a goal. Maybe it's a goal for 2021 because there's a lot to accomplish this year yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's definitely something that is on my mind to be, you know, historically I had you know, been in much, much better shape. I've you know, done an Ironman. Um, I've run marathons, but uh, you know, wow. I, I, I probably, I, I, it, again, admittedly, I probably couldn't even go out and run three or four miles, <laughs> you know, right now. So, uh, you know, there's definitely room for improvement there. Yeah, it's so tough. I mean, it's so tough as you want to just work on your thing, and then there's so many things pop up throughout the day. Uh, I mean, for me, most of the time, if I don't do it in the in the morning, it's a, it's very unlikely that I will do the workout, the run, whatever it may be. Uh, and there's less options now with the COVID situation, gyms being closed, etc. Where it's just different. Uh, it's definitely different. And you see people switching to 
like whether it be in, indoor, like with Peloton or, or something else, um, find those ways to do it. But definitely for me, at least helpful in some ways to find something to do, even if it's a short amount of time. I just feel I'm pretty lucky that I have an exercise science background. So uh, it's just ingrained in me to find a way to do fitness things as well as growing growing a business. Yeah, I think I just need to start blocking more time for it. Um, so the calendar just tells me what to do. Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? Everything's in the calendar. And if it's not in the calendar, it's not real. So it's not going to happen. That's just how it kind of goes with people, especially if you're blocking off your time for everything. And and for you, Thomas, with running preview the last number of years and understanding kind of the mission you have behind it, I mean, what is like the grand vision? Like what would be something where you get to this point, like that's what we're trying to get to, like that's what we're trying to do. What does it look like for, for preview? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a, a very strong North Star and it's it's building that one-stop shop for home buyers. Um, you know, this begins with brokerage and, and saving people money on their, you know, real estate commissions. Um, but it can grow into something so much more. And, you know, when you look at all the different steps in a home buyer's journey, all of the different things they're spending money on, you know, above and beyond the home itself, uh, you know, we envision a world where we begin entering and adding more services, more products for the home buyer. Um, and really be the, the start to finish solution for them um, while saving the money at every step of, of their home buying journey. And with that, understanding that, and we're recording this again, August 24th, 2020, as of now, you're, you're hiring. I'm just curious, uh, what are you hiring for? What are you looking for? For Give you a shout out for people interested in joining the team. Sure. Yeah. We're, we're always looking for great talent. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely on the hunt for, for more engineers. Um, you know, the, the complexity of some of the newer stuff we're building um, will require additional you know, resources. Uh, we will be expanding in all the markets um, that we're in. So anybody that's interested in you know, taking a new approach to being a, a real estate agent, um, you know, you know, if for Philadelphia, Boston, New York, um, you know, we, we are hiring even post COVID, um, we've had to accelerate our agent hiring because it's been so busy. And, you know, on top of that, um, I think when we approach 2021, we'll, we'll probably be looking in several other cities um, for talent. Um, so, you know, if you're interested in real estate um, or if you're interested in, you know, helping to build the tools for real estate, um, you know, definitely reach out to us at uh, you know, preview.com, P-R-E-V-U.com. Um, or I'm very active on, on LinkedIn. So, you know, Thomas Kutzman, I'm you know, always happy to field uh, you know, inbound for anybody interested in uh, learning more about opportunities we have coming up. Awesome. And then just one of my final questions is just any particular uh, lessons, takeaways, anything else you'd want to share with other entrepreneurs, other aspiring entrepreneurs, just looking back on your your five five years plus with, with Preview, you were a first-time founder, but now you've grown this thing, you've gone through raising fundraising, you've done a lot of different things. Is there is there anything else you would just uh, tell other entrepreneurs out there? I would remind people to always follow the data uh, and trust your gut. Like I think too often, especially as you start to, you know, whether it's raising money um, or going through funding processes or starting network with other founders, a lot of people are going to give you ideas on how to run your business, what you should be doing, um, whether it's friends in the industry, uh, et cetera, or even, you know, during the fundraising process, people that don't invest in you will tell you why you're wrong or why you're going to fail. Um, but just believe in yourself and trust your gut because what you don't want to happen is, you know, you don't want to listen to all these other people fail and then think I should have done it my way. So respond to the data and just make your gut decisions and, and follow them. And, 
then you'll have no regrets whether you win, lose, or draw. You know you did exactly what you wanted, um, the way you wanted to do it. Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. You want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.